two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. I'm Ryan Preclaw, and I head up Barclays Investment Sciences team. We provide investment insights by combining alternative data, data science, and traditional research. I'm joined today by Will Thompson, who's a member of our sustainable and thematic research team. They analyze and identify disruptive multi-sector thematic trends. Will, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. So Will's been leading research on the potential impact that electric vehicles are going to have on the grid. So we're going to call these EVs for today. And when we do, we're specifically talking about battery-powered cars. So, Will, the discussion around EVs usually focuses on whether they're going to become popular. But we're going to just take a different angle. I think we both believe that they're going to be the dominant type of car in the near or near-ish future. And when that happens, they're going to need a lot of electricity, which raises the question at hand. Will EVs break the grid? Yes. So both of us have recently published on this topic. We often take uh, the electric grid for granted, despite it being the workhorse that literally powers modern day society. I I do worry that aggressive uh, targets and timetables, not only for EV adoption, but also a net zero grid, such as those in California, understate the challenges in balancing uh, electric supply demand. Uh, If we aren't more proactive in addressing these challenges soon, you know, it it could really undermine the potential costs and emission benefits of the energy transition. For me, the takeaway has been different. I'm an optimist uh, because I think it's a big change, but it comes along with both new potential sources of grid flexibility and a really spectacular quantity of money that can potentially be deployed to solve any power supply imbalance problems that arise. It is complicated, though, and I think we both agree that the amount of power consumed is going to rise. I've taken a rather top-down approach and explored the different technologies and policies that can help manage the EV load. From my perspective, quantifying the overall size of the EV electric demand from the top-down is, is pretty straightforward. In the U.S., for example, we know how many light-duty vehicles are on the road, we know how far they travel, we know how much power uh, they require. Simple math indicates that a 100% conversion of light-duty vehicles to all-electric battery EVs would increase the overall U.S. electric demand by nearly 30%. Right. And so on my team, we've attacked this question from the bottom up. We try to model the interplay of policy, behavior, technology in a lot of detail. So we started with what our data science team had done previously, which is build a power system planning model that simulates the whole power system hourly and estimates the demand based on people's consumption, supply down to individual generation sources. Then to take on EVs, we added a generative model. So it's uh, under the hood, very similar to uh, how AI models work, except that uh, what it generates is plausible patterns of EV driving. When do people leave their homes? How far do they drive? How much do they drain their batteries? And when do they plug in to charge them back up? And so we've completed that work for California because there's a law requiring 100% EVs by 2035. Personally, I prefer my simple math, but I'm sure you've gained some incredible insights from that. Uh, so, you know, we think there's some different scenarios for how this all could work. But in the one that matches most closely with what you're doing, uh, we think that the power demand for personal vehicles would increase by 18 uh, percent. I think your view also includes light duty commercial vehicles like pickup trucks and ride hailing. And so I think we put those in is roughly in line with your 30 percent forecast for total uh, U.S. demand increase for electricity. While we're still very much in the early innings of adoption, uh, EV penetration seems to be entering an inflection point. And even earlier this year, the Biden administration proposed even tighter emission standards designed to ensure that about two-thirds of new light-duty vehicles sold in the U.S. are electric by 2032. And California passed its own law, essentially requiring 100% of new vehicles to be zero emission by 2035. Uh, but soon after that law was passed, California actually asked its EV owners not to charge amid a heat wave last summer. And that's with only about 5% total penetration of EVs. 
Look, I can see why you say that 5% EV is already causing stress on the grid as a demonstration of how much this could be a problem. Um, because I think if they are causing a problem at that level, it does suggest a more impossible problem once you get to 100. But I'm going to turn this on its head. In the past, solving brownouts was essentially an impossible problem in the short term. But with EVs in the picture, it was actually very simple. They just asked nicely. Um, you know, and think what we're looking at here is that it gives us a new set of tools for grid management. You know, things we've never had before. And I think if we're willing to, to use them a little bit creatively, then we can actually make this transition much more easily. You know, first, I think it'd be helpful if we could uh, step back and maybe define what we're concerned about. The stress is less about higher annual electricity demand. It's when these EVs are plugged into the grid and start to charge in a way that increases peak demand. Yeah, so you're talking about how utility systems need to be built to handle that peak, both in terms of the time of year, which is or time of day, which is typically before 4 and 8 p.m., um, when power demand is at its highest, and then also in terms of the time of year when demand is highest. Which is exactly my point. All the grid components, the power plants, the long transmission lines, the last mile distribution capacity need to be sized to meet peak demand, even if peak demand occurs only a minute of any given year. There also needs to be a margin of safety for when everybody gets home from work, cranks up their ACs, turns on their TV and runs the dishwasher. If you plug in EVs on top of that, we're going to crush the current system. Yes. So what makes you think that EV power demand is going to be concentrated right in this peak time? The expectation is that charging home is going to make up the bulk of the EV power load. First, charging home is often the most affordable option. Also, it's often the most convenient option since people can charge overnight. However, data shows that residential charging tends to occur when people return home from work in the afternoon. If residential charging goes unmanaged, it will coincide with existing peak power demand. This will lead to higher peak power demand outside the supply window. Okay, so your main concern here is that EVs are not going to be able to charge from solar panels if people basically come home at night when there's not that much sun to plug in. So I'd agree that that's probably not what California is hoping to get out of it. But even relying on like natural gas or peaker plants, I think it still results in much lower emissions uh, than driving a conventional gas-powered car. Yes, but it means that EVs are far from being quote-unquote zero-emission vehicles when they're still heavily relying on power demand from fossil fuels. I actually believe that the distribution network that delivers power from the transmission system to homes is at most at risk. Since the bulk of EV charging will be done at home, it will cause power demand in residential neighborhoods to exceed the capacity of the local distribution network. Plus, there's already a massive backlog of renewable projects waiting to be approved for the interconnection to the grid, in part due to a lack of transmission capacity. Yet efforts to expedite the transmission permitting process remains a political challenge. Okay, so now I think we're getting to where we see things a bit differently. Because I think that EVs can actually let us manage the grid in ways that have actually never been possible. You know, so to understand the trade-offs that California is facing between uh, the cost of EV transition, those behavioral constraints, we modeled three extreme scenarios. So the first one assumes unmanaged charging where you know, new natural gas plants have to be installed to accommodate all this new demand from EV charging. Obviously, scenario one isn't an ideal from an emission standpoint. Yeah, I would agree with that. But these are extreme scenarios that we're talking about because we're trying to get insights into the potential trade-offs. You know, the second scenario assumes a minimum investment. So that's where grid operators can manage EV demand by controlling when people can actually charge. And they can do that to minimize how much they need to invest in new power infrastructure. Exactly what do you mean when you say control when people charge? Yeah, so this would be our least cost scenario. So we give uh, utility operators the opportunity to control when you plug in your car and when it actually charges. So if you plugged it into the wall, but it wasn't the time for you to charge, it wouldn't actually work. In that case, basically utilities can manage things so that they add the least amount of distribution, least amount of transmission, least amount of new generation. They can uh, basically make it as cheap as possible. I mean, fair point. I think what you're describing is essentially smart charging, where utility operators can control the time of charging. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And then our third scenario is our most green scenario. That requires heavy investment in wind and solar and the use of bi-directional EV charging. So that's where EVs can actually store excess renewables when they're made and then put it back into the grid when it's needed. So bi-directional EV charging opens the door to controlling millions of EVs and basically turning them into virtual power plants that can provide all the grid benefits that come from a utility-grade power plant. Your your last two scenarios include what is called uh, vehicle grid integration, or VGI for short. Uh, VGI encompasses all the technologies, the policies, and the market designs that optimize when, where, and how EVs interact with the grid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that creates new tools for grids that can give a 100% EV world a completely different model for grid management than what we've had in the past. While I appreciate your optimism, from my sense, each vehicle grid integration solution seems to have its own limitations or scaling hurdles. Smart charging can be effective in shaving the peak load by delaying charging activity until after midnight, but it really doesn't help align EV charging with solar supply. And and given a lack of workplace charging today, the ability and willingness of EV owners to charge during midday hours remains a major challenge. Yeah, I would say that you're right so far, but I also think that that's simply because there haven't been that many EVs. So let's imagine a just slightly different world where utilities give workplaces and offices a discount on EV chargers, and they can encourage people to charge during the day. I mean, that that is possible, but it's not happening yet. And I'm also a bit skeptical about the prospects of bidirectional charging for personal vehicles. First, you know, grid regulations, market designs, and infrastructure simply weren't designed to accommodate bidirectional resources, particularly small mobile ones like cars. This raises, in my view, a number of safety and reliability concerns. Yeah, but bidirectional charging can enable us to do something we've never been able to do before. EV chargers can charge during low power prices and then push that power back to the grid when prices are high. So, look, they could save... Well, they could even earn money to lower the total cost of EV ownership. And it's not really that different from net metering for home solar installations. And those part programs have been hugely popular and successful. That might be right in theory. However, EV owners will likely command compensation for any inconvenience in their daily schedules, additional bidirectional hardware and installation costs, which we know are expensive, and depreciation of their EV batteries since bidirectional charging depletes a battery's useful life. I believe that last point is often overlooked. The main reason for buying a car is for transportation. Allowing the grid to access your EV battery will limit how many miles you'll be able to drive that vehicle. It also raises the question, how will EV manufacturers treat battery warranties? For example, the leading EV manufacturer, Tesla, currently doesn't permit bidirectional charging for its vehicles. Yeah, you say that, but some EV manufacturers are actually promoting it in their marketing. So, you know, you mentioned Tesla doesn't allow it, and I think that's fair. Ford actually markets this as a feature of the F-150 Lightning, which is their new uh, electric pickup truck. So, yes, several EV models in the U.S. have or plan to have bidirectional capabilities. However, all but one are trucks and are being marketed for use as backup power for people's homes or to serve off-grid loads, such as construction site or campsites. They currently aren't able to do vehicle-to-grid bidirectional charging in which the EV actually can discharge power back to the grid. I don't get the sense that most EV manufacturers have made vehicle-to-grid a priority, and I think this is largely in part to concerns about battery degradation when bidirectional charging is used frequently. So what we've been talking around here, though, is the idea that integrating EVs into the grid involves some sort of trade-offs at the collective level, right? It could be easy for end users if we're all willing to pay higher capital costs and accept that we're going to have some ongoing fossil fuel usage in these new natural gas power plants. Or, look, it could be cheaper. So if people are willing to change their charging patterns, maybe their driving schedule, let the utility control when they can and can't charge, it could be pretty inexpensive. Or, I'm just going to say, if you're maybe thinking from a California perspective and you want it to be more green, that if we're willing to go all in, build a lot of new infrastructure, add a lot of new equipment to the electric cars, and be willing to have drivers do some things they've never done before, like give power back to the grid, it could work that way. So I guess what you're saying is that like most things in life, it can't be easy, cheap, and good at the same time. 
Uh, yeah, something like that. And look, I think ultimately it's going to be up to policymakers and the public. They're going to have to decide which of those trade-offs they prefer. For California, which targets you know a green grid and net zero transportation, you know, I think our max green scenario suggests that they could spend up to $150 billion uh, in investment over the next 20 years to get that. You know, that said, that is going to be counterbalanced by uh, maybe $300 billion of savings in gasoline over the first 20 years after uh, they convert to 100% EVs. So we're talking about big numbers. We're talking about big numbers on both sides. My worry is that a, a lot of things need to go right for this to happen smoothly. Money, political will, good policies, technology breakthroughs, and a lot of grid infrastructure investment. Uh, doing all this will require effective coordination among various stakeholders, including utilities, auto manufacturers, regulators, and policymakers. And we've had multiple conversations with many of those respective uh, stakeholders. And my sense is just really not quite yet on the same page. So I guess we'll just have to continue to watch the space to see how it all plays out. You can read our latest impact series report on the EV transition at barclays.com slash CIV, or clients can read more articles and reports on Barclays Live aligned to this topic. To do that, use the hashtag energy revolution and ESG transition. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flip Side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com slash CIB.